y'all. Today I'm sharing an interview I conducted at the Helium Conference with Amir Halim, CEO of Nova Labs and founder of Helium. We cover Helium's fascinating story of struggling to create a decentralized IoT network until Helium introduced a token in 2017. Plus, we go over its plans to introduce new networks, such as for cellular and 5G, which includes having separate tokens for each new network. It was a great discussion. Hope you enjoy it. Harness the full power of the Avalanche Network with Core, your new Web3 command center. Built by Ava Labs, Core is more than just a wallet. It's a non-custodial browser extension engineered for users to seamlessly and securely experience Web3 like never before. Explore Avalanche dApps, NFTs, bridges, subnets, and more today. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming to our session. I figured that we would start with kind of a basic question around what problem it is that you were trying to solve when you set out to build Helium and how you felt Helium would resolve that. Yeah, in the, in the initial uh, version of Helium, or the, the, the version that I think we have now, was really aimed at trying to build a, a ubiquitous IoT network. Like, how would you build, like, a network that was literally everywhere for IoT devices, which are, you know, things like sensors and tracking devices. And um, it, it's difficult. It's a difficult problem to solve in a traditional way, right? Like, we've seen big telcos really struggle with deploying IoT networks because the cost is just quite frankly too high to build the network, which means that the cost to use the network for the, for the users is too high. So we wanted to figure out like how to, how to deploy a network in a slightly different way, right? Where the, there, were, there weren't billions of dollars of cost like absorbed by a single entity. Because the downside there is, as I mentioned, like you have to pass that cost on to users, right? And so companies that are building like precision agriculture applications or logistics applications, you know, tracking packages, it can't cost $20 a month, right? Like it, it, in a lot of cases, customers want to spend like a dollar a year or something, right? So you, you need a very different way of, of building the network. And, you know, building this crypto economic model was, to me, like a really interesting way of like distributing ownership of the network, right? In, in the same way that I, I think of Airbnb as having distributed hospitality to people and Uber having distributed transportation to people, Helium is the first time I think that the general public can participate in the telecom industry, right? Yeah, Which is but actually, new. let's back up because before you introduced the crypto token, you struggled a little bit, and then that sort of solved a problem for you. So, can you talk about that moment? Yeah, I mean, we, str we struggled for years. We we launched in 2013, actually July 4th, it was, and we didn't really know how to solve the problem. Like, we we had a lot of ideas on how we might do this differently. A lot of them were actually similar to what we ended up doing, but we didn't have the right economic structure. Right? Like we, wanted, we didn't want to build the network. We knew it was going to be too expensive, and we would just be like a low-budget version of AT&T or something. Right? And, and so we didn't really want to do it that way. 
it, and so we, we struggled with all sorts of different approaches. Like we tried to make it sort of developer first and sort of hope that developers would, would build the network. We hoped that customers would, you know, partially build the network. It wasn't really until probably 2017 that we started paying attention to crypto in any meaningful way, which is so, sort of embarrassing. It took us that long to, to figure out that crypto was a thing. Um, still early. Yeah, yeah, well, it's still very early, right? But it didn't feel like it at the time. But yeah, even back in like 2013 or 14, I think uh, Mark Phillips, who, who runs business development for us, who's here somewhere, we, we were joking that we should put ASIC, you know, miners inside hotspots, right, to mine Bitcoin. We didn't really know what that meant at the time. We were like, I don't know if that's even a thing. But, but um, then we sort of forgot about it for two or three years. And I, for me, when I read the Filecoin white paper, actually, was the first time that I had seen someone trying to build a crypto network that was specific to a, 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 like an application, right? It wasn't just about moving money or it wasn't esoteric in the way that Ethereum or something was. And it was like, okay, would they want to build a file storage network and this is how they're going to do it. And then it was like a little bit of a light bulb for us. It's like, well, what if we could do the same approximate thing, but for network coverage? And, and that's kind of how it was born. It was probably sort of towards the end of 2017. And so once you introduced the token, kind of what, what, did, what how did the network behave or how did participants on the network behave before? And then how did they behave after? So it was really a big reboot when, when we started this version of Helium in 2019, as I, I mentioned a little bit ago, we, we launched actually here in Austin in 2019. And the, I think there's three types of like participant in, in Helium, at least this is the way I've come to think of it. There are like crypto enthusiasts, right, who are familiar with mining, maybe they mine other, you know, crypto protocols. There are IoT enthusiasts, so people who are already involved in IoT that, you know, were working with LoRaWAN or, or, or knew, knew about it or were building sensors or were building applications. And then there's a group that I, I don't know how to describe them any better than to just call them like telco anarchists who like, you like hate telcos, right? right? And, like, and it's, it's an easy one to hate, right? Like I don't think anyone is, is particularly like thrilled with, with the telco industry. So th those are kind of the three constituents and they, they all behave kind of differently, right? Like the IoT enthusiasts are focused on the developer applications and like how to build, you know, stuff that uses the network. The crypto miners are like purely focused on like mining and ROI and rewards. And the telco anarchists are just, you know, doing their, doing, doing their thing. I don't know. Uh, but that's, you know, those are, I think, kind of the constituents. And they're all motivated in slightly different ways. Uh, but ultimately, everyone gets to participate in, like, the economics of this. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I actually feel like those groups apply to pretty much all the crypto networks. You've got, like, the speculators, the actual users, and then the people who are kind of, like, ideological about it. And so now, at this point, you've grown to one billion devices. How did you do that? And kind of give us a, a picture of like where they are and where you still have kind of uh, dead spots, I guess. I, I'm not sure how to call them. Yeah. So, so there are it's closing in on about a million devices globally now. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, Hotspots. Hot I misheard you when oh, I no. spoke the other day. Billion sounds better. But, um, <laughs> okay. I, I, did, I wish it was not quite there. Definitely like, a difference. Getting there um, soon. Um, <laughs> I still can't believe that this is accurate, but someone said that 10% of, of the Earth's population is close to helium coverage now, which I don't know if that's true or not. Don't hold me to it, but it sounds good. And 75% of US zip codes are, you know, have, have some amount of helium coverage. And so, so some of that is, is a function of the technology that we use. So, so the, the protocol that we use is called LoRaWAN. It is extremely long range, right? So a single hotspot can create, in, in some cases, miles and miles of network coverage. 
but really, it's just I, I think it's this excitement around getting to participate in this industry for the for the first time, right? It's like you can't get into the telecom industry. There are so many moats, right? There's spectrum, and there's the cost of infrastructure, and there's the complexity of like actually deploying it and using it. And so I, I think part of what Helium did really, really well was make the user experience of building a network quite simple, right? Like you got a device that wasn't ugly, right? It wasn't like an ASIC miner, which is kind of like a shoebox of wires, right? Right? It was kind of decent looking, and you set it up with a, a phone app in the same way that you would a consumer electronic device. And I, I think making it easy to use is a critical like innovation there, right? Like because it opens it to it opens it to a much broader audience. And I, I think crypto in general still has a lot of work to do in terms of like closing that that gap. It's still wildly complicated and, and confusing for the most part. So I think Helium did that well, and it's a big part of, of why the network has been able to like grow and expand and, and reach so many different people. And so it sounds like there's quite a concentration in the US. I actually don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's there are about 65,000 cities and 170 countries, I think, is the, is the approximate number. So I actually don't know the percentages, but it's it's definitely we started in the US like we were you were US centric for a while. But we now have like all sorts of different vendors that are manufacturing hotspots in different regions of the world. And so it, it's very global now, but I, I actually don't know the, the distribution percentages. And so you started with the Internet of Things. Can you talk a little bit about who it is that began using Helium for that purpose and kind of what that usage looks like? Yeah, so I think one of the, the challenging things with the IoT space is it's, it's, it's different from something like cellular, right? Like with cellular, like there is a use case, right, which is phones like for, for the most part, right? And with IoT, it is not like that. Like the use cases are just literally everything, right? Like anything you could think of, right? And, and so the breadth of applications are both impressive but also a challenge, right? Because it's difficult to focus on any one particular thing and say like, okay, that's where we should be spending all of our you know, business development energy or something, right? It's, it's, it doesn't really work that way. And so it's everything from precision agriculture, which is the whole industry of, you know, how do we make farming more efficient, basically, right? Using, using data and, and sensors to logistics, like how do I track packages and, you know, know where everything is all the time and to, God, they just, there's a drone delivery company that I just mentioned, which is one of my favorite, where they're actually delivering packages using drones. You know, so it's, it's very, very broad. I think Salesforce is using it to track employee badges. So it's, it's all over the place. Like, you couldn't even look at a single use case and say, like, that's the one, right? Like you, like you can in cellular, for example, uh, which is both a strength and a challenge at the, at the same time. I have to say, I, the Salesforce thing sounds a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of it's a little creepy. You know, they've got like sensors every, everywhere, right? And it's, it's like um, one of those like tags on you, you know, that you put on an animal or I don't know. Um, but anyway, hopefully they're, hopefully. I, I, I wouldn't speak to Salesforce's uh, HR policies. I, I don't know. So now let's talk about some new initiatives that you have. You're going to be adding new networks. Talk about what those networks are and why you decided to add them. And something interesting to me is that you're going to have tokens for each of them. So I'm curious about why you decided to go that route as well. It, it was really um, demand-driven is, is the way I, I like to think of it. Right? We were very focused on IoT. We've spent so long in that industry that we, I don't want to say expert, like I, I never feel comfortable saying we're experts in something, but we know a lot about IoT. And so we, there's still a lot of work to do there, right? Like we aren't finished by, by, by any means. It was really the, the FreedomFi team. So FreedomFi is a, a company uh, based in the Bay Area also uh, that was building open source cellular networks, right? Like they, their vision is, is effectively to be sort of the Linux or Red Hat of, of cellular networking. 
Today, like that industry is dominated really by three players, like Nokia, Ericsson, and Huawei are the companies that build base station infrastructure uh, for, for all the telcos. And the vision there was like, okay, maybe just like you did in the enterprise server market where it used to be dominated by like Sun and HP and Microsoft and eventually kind of got blown up by open source Linux, maybe the same thing could happen in the telco industry for cellular, right? Which is that the infrastructure could get much cheaper and much, and much simpler and be much more broadly available uh, globally. And so they discovered Helium at some point in their journey, right? Like in, and realized that Helium was an, an interesting way of accelerating that vision. And so that was really how we got introduced to it. We, we had always toyed with the idea, uh, even in our original white paper back in 2018, like, you know, there's a section there where we talked about, like, we would like to figure out if we could do the same thing in 5G or, or cellular or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or any, any other type of network. So it, it wasn't a new idea. I just don't think we knew exactly how to, to do it, right? Like we were still so focused on IoT. And then the FreedomFi team had done so much work already on, on how to do that. So it sort of became a natural thing. It's like, okay, well, how would we fit cellular into the network, right? Because you've got like this token supply and so much of it has already gone to the IoT network. How would you incentivize the, the creation of the 5G network the same way, right? And, and that's how this idea of like multiple tokens was born, sort of thinking about Helium as like an L1 and an L2 in the same way that like Ethereum has ETH and L2 tokens are, you know, on top. Uh, that was kind of the idea and that was sort of the vision behind it. Oh, does that mean that with existing Helium devices, you can just add, like, a, to add, add 5G to your existing device, or do you need a separate device? Or it's it will probably be possible to do some of that, right? So I, I know uh, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to talk about it, but one of the vendors is is thinking about doing that, making an add-on device for their existing hotspots that makes it possible to turn their existing IoT device into a cellular-ready device. But for the most part, you you're, you'll be buying new hardware that that does a different thing. And how do you encourage people kind of in those dead areas to spin up devices? Because I imagine like cities probably have much more coverage simply because there's more people there. Yeah, so, so I, don't, I don't think we've done this perfectly by any means, but we, we came up with this idea called proof of coverage, which you know, tries, to, tries to verify whether coverage exists in a place, right? It's like one of the most, prob most difficult blockchain problems is this sort of like Oracle problem as they describe it, right? Like how do you get data from the outside world into the blockchain and know that it's true, right? And the simplest example was always the weather, for example, right? Like how would you, how would you know that it's like 72 degrees in San Francisco, like, and be able to verify that and prove that it's true, like- Or 100 on, degrees in Austin. Or 100 degrees in Austin with 80% humidity or whatever it is. So part of the proof of coverage idea, and this was, this was a, a community proposal like several years ago, was to try and increase the rewards for areas that were less dense, basically, right? So it, basically trying to use economics to motivate people to do the right thing. It, it works reasonably well, but you still have this situation where there are like 4,000 hotspots in like Manhattan or something, right? And, and it's, you know, so it, it isn't, people live where they live to, to some degree, right? And so some, some, of the, some of the journey is just reaching more people, right? Like is, is, in, is reaching people that are in those rural areas. I think with, 5G and with cellular, it's going to be quite different from IoT because the user can also consume their own network, right? And in IoT, like a lot of the applications are still B2B type applications, right? They're industrial or they're, they're commercial in some way. There are still very few consumer-focused IoT applications. So I think the people building the, the IoT network don't necessarily get to use it, right? Like it's for someone else. And with 
5G, it's going to be very different to that, right? Like the people building the network may also use the network, right? And so people in rural areas in dead spots who don't have good coverage from an existing tel telco might be, you know, inspired to try this because it's a way to like build networks in their community or for themselves. And so I think the dynamics there with 5G versus IoT are going to be quite different. And so when you kind of project your vision out for when this network kind of has, you know, a decent amount of coverage and there really is a 5G network, I guess, or a cellular network that you can mostly rely on. You know, what, is, what does that look like? Like you were saying, maybe it would bring costs down because I, I personally don't really know what it means to have an open source cellular network. Does it mean that I won't pay AT&T every month or kind of what does that look like? Yeah, no, I think it's exactly what we'll, we, we would like to end up happening, right? Is that we, we know of at least one entity uh, building a carrier on top of, of Helium 5G. And I think that's super exciting. And so you, you might subscribe directly to them, right? And, and rather than use AT&T or T-Mobile or Verizon or whatever, you, you may be a customer of a, of, a, of a carrier that lives on the network, right? And I expect there to be a bunch of different benefits for doing that. One is definitely cost, right? Like you can probably bring the cost of using the network down to fractions of what it costs today, just because just like in IoT, the cost of deploying the infrastructure is so much cheaper than the traditional way of doing it. I think there are going to be other benefits depending on what it is that people care about, right? Like it's going to be much more private in, in nature. There won't, be a, there won't be an entity selling your data to someone else, right? Like, so, and they'll be harder to like do SIM swap attacks. And like, you know, so it, it sort of depends on, it, 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 I think it will depend on the segment. Like for some people, price is going to be the, the main driver. For other people, private, like for me, privacy would be the main driver. For other people, security would be the main driver. You know, so there's lots of, I think, lots of different ways of looking at it. But ultimately, like, this is infrastructure that anyone can use, including, including the carriers, right? So, like, we've constantly been in talks with all of the, the major carriers. I think FreedomFi announced that two of the three big U.S. carriers are already testing on the Helium 5G network to use it as an offload network for themselves. And that, so there's, there's going to be lots of different ways that the network gets consumed, whether you know it or not. And, and what does that mean, offload network? Is that like when there's peak demand or something? They have this kind of backup resource? or Something like that. It, it sort of depends on the situation. And I always use the example of airports as being a good one, right? Like if you go into an airport, particularly in the United States, the cell carriers don't actually own those networks, right? So if I'm an AT&T customer and I go into SFO airport, it's, it's still going to say AT&T in the corner and it's going to look like I have five bars, but I'm actually using someone else's network. Like it might be run by Boingo, it might be run by someone else. And Boingo has a relationship with AT&T that is sort of passing data back and forth. And increasingly, wireless networks are built this way, right? Like, it, often they are owned by multiple parties. Uh, and AT&T is sort of the subscriber face, or T-Mobile is the subscriber face. But in the back end, it's actually a network of networks, in, in, for, for want of a better word. And so you could imagine Helium 5G being like that. It would be one of the players in that ecosystem. And AT&T or T-Mobile or Verizon may choose to use the Helium network for a bunch of different reasons. There may be coverage in areas where they don't have coverage. It may be cheaper than what they're paying someone like Boingo to, to, to use the network. You know, like, so there, there, it may be congestion, right? Like their main macro network may be too busy or too crowded. And you can think of it, especially for events. Like if you go to the conference center to go try and go to consensus, like the cell phone service there is atrocious, right? Because you've got five bars, but nothing works because there's just so much traffic on the network. And so there are going to be lots and lots of different situations, I think, where it, it, it is interesting to the carriers to like use a network like Helium. Uh, to like offload, basically. That's the, that's the sort of industry term for that. Something that was interesting to me was earlier when you were describing uh, the open source 
cellular networks, you were saying basically that people would still interface with companies on the network, that it wasn't something you know, truly decentralized where maybe people might pay with tokens directly or something. But you know, why is it that there would still be company, centralized companies that they would interface with? I think you could do it either way. Like you could do it that way, right? Where you, where you interface directly with the network. And we have that on the IoT network today. There's sort of like centralized entities that make it easier for, for companies to, to, to get to use the network. And, and some of the reason for that is, you know, like some of these big corporations don't want to hold tokens. Like sometimes they can't hold tokens for like legal reasons. So sometimes it is necessary for there to be an interface somehow, right? And I, I think what's important is, the, is making it possible for like multiple entities to be the interface. Right? Like, we don't have to be the interface on the IoT network, for example. Like, there are several providers that make it possible. If you didn't want to do it directly on chain and you, did want to, like, you didn't want to hold tokens and you would rather use a credit card, for example, like, there are entities that will help you do that. And so to me, it's important that it, it, it isn't just us. Like, sometimes customers are added to the network. We have no idea who they are. We don't even know they exist. And that's great, right? right? Like, it's perfect to, to do it that way. So I think there will always be multiple paths that you can choose. And if you are a miner, for example, and you have a bunch of, of tokens, you know, you, there's going to be a way for you to just use the tokens to consume the network directly. It's going to be more sort of, you know, prosumer focused that way, right? Like only a certain group of people are going to do that. Others are going to be just like, I want to, you know, just give you my credit card basically and like treat it as if it was AT&T or T-Mobile or Verizon. So as long as I think there's options, I think it's okay that there are centralized entities that sit there, you know, arguably in the same way that you have crypto, your fiat on and off ramps in crypto in general, right? Like you you need a Coinbase or you need an FTX or you need someone to like be the interface to get, to get in and out of the ecosystem. And so it's similar to that, but I think a little bit more open. And actually we didn't, we, you know, kind of touched on this question of why you would have a separate token for each of these new networks that you're building. But what, like, why is that? Why is that necessary? I think a few different reasons. I mean, one of them is is, is to think about governance, right? Like the, the, the way the networks work is going to be very, very different from each other, right? And as an example, like the cost of using the cellular network should be completely different from the cost of using the IoT network, right? And as an example, I think using the IoT network is about $400 a gigabyte, right? In cellular land, that's absurd, right? Like you would never, like you just could never pay that, right? And so in, in the 5G network, it's 50 cents a gigabyte, right? And so there are going to be these very different considerations and the way, you know, the proof of coverage protocol works is going to be completely different from network to network. So so one of them is to try and encourage governance of each protocol to like be in the hands of the people actually like building those networks, right? So if you are building the IoT network and you are a holder of the IoT token, like you are the one with governance rights for, for that token, right? Not HNT holders, like IoT holders, right? And the same for 5G, and you know, that will be called the mobile token. And so part of it is that. Part of it is this this sort of notion of like unit bias, right? So there was a there was a, an improvement proposal maybe about a year ago that suggested redenominating HNT, right? So, instead, so that one HNT would become 1,000 HNT. And part of that is miners don't like earning 0.05 HNT a day or whatever the average is, right? They would rather have 50 or 500. And we aren't the only network to have like struggled with this. Like Polkadot did this you know, a, a while ago. They redenominated and they added you know, like four zeros to the end of their, you know, to their token. And so some of it is that, right? Like having this sort of redenomination uh, and some of it is, is just to allow the economies to exist on their own. Like people might, you know, speculators or investors in those networks, I, I think, want to speculate in different ways depending on what the network is, or they might have different desires or different visions for how this is going to go. So having separate tokens allows, allows for all of that activity 
but still accrues value back to HNT and sort of like HNT is sort of the reserve currency, kind of like gold in, in, a, in the sort of US dollar analogy, but like back in the 70s. So in terms of the cellular network, I just imagine there's going to be a lot more challenges in growing that simply because, as we mentioned, there's so much more demand for cellular packets. I'm, I'm not sure what the, the terminology is. So how do you imagine overcoming that? Because I, I do think probably the Internet of Things network is just a lot easier to build because there's not as much demand. So It's easier in a bunch of different ways, right? I mean, the, the range of the IoT network devices is much larger, right? And so there's in, in radio frequency technology, you're like always trading range for bandwidth, basically, right? So you can, you can make the bandwidth extremely small, right? So that you can only send, you know, tiny bits of data and you get longer range out of that. In the cellular applications, it's the opposite of that, right? The bandwidth is very wide, but the range is relatively tiny. So you're going to have a different type of challenge, right? Like you're going to need many more devices, devices being hotspots, um, in order to create like reasonably useful coverage networks. The flip side of that is there's so much more demand, right? So there's, there's arguably there's more economic incentive to set up more devices because there's going to be a lot of phones using those networks, right? And so it's it's different from the IoT network, which is, I think, still searching for applications, right? Like there's, you know, five or ten year like lead time basically for IoT to get big, as as far as I'm concerned. And you know, there's one example of a of a company using this network called NanoThings that has built this tracking device that's like a sticker, and they started before we did, right? And they're only now, you know, like getting their product to market in like a meaningful way. And so that's how long it takes to like go from an idea to like an actual product. And so everyone kind of has to be aware of that, right? Like IoT is on a long, long timeline, and that's okay. But cellular is going to be very different. You're going to require many more devices, as, as you're saying. Like the demand is so much higher for, for bandwidth. The range is so much worse for, on, the, on the device side. But at the same time, the economic incentive is very different, right? Like they're going to be like real data consumption on the network. Uh, and that's ultimately where I think Helium and HNT as a token needs to be which is ideally like decoupled from the very speculative nature of the crypto markets, right? Like it shouldn't be that when Bitcoin goes down 3%, H&T goes down 10% or something, right? Like they, that we want to like try and get rid of that coupling so that demand for H&T is primarily driven by usage rather than speculation. All right, well, what future kind of milestones or challenges are you looking forward to as you move forward with Helium? Yeah, so as I mentioned a little bit earlier, like the, the mobile token launches in a few weeks. And so that's kind of the first major milestone, which is that anyone that, is, that owns a 5G hotspot will start to earn mobile tokens. So definitely a good time to, to start getting involved with that. And then, you know, there's a lot of like implementation steps required in order to like get to the sort of fullness of, of, of a network of networks kind of idea. So I think it will realistically probably take us until the end of the year until, until all of that is finished. And so that, but that's exciting work. And then I'm excited to, to see what people do with the network, like as it, as it grows, right? Like, and we already know about some of the things that are coming and it will be exciting to announce some of those partnerships and some of those deals. This work that we're doing as, as Nova Labs, as a company, which we'll also be announcing, which I think is also really exciting. So we have our hands full for the foreseeable future, but it's, it's all to me like incredibly exciting and an amazing journey. And what have I not asked you that you would want this audience to know? I kind of I'm shilling again, but we, people should people should buy hotspots while they're here because they they are heavily discounted while everyone's here. Uh, so go do that upstairs and downstairs. Yeah, and I like I said I, I just I'm, I couldn't be more excited about where helium is and and where helium is going. And so and I'm 
continue to be thankful for the community that has joined us on this journey and is really responsible for, for all of the growth. Great. Yeah, I have to say, for those of you who read a lot of crypto coverage in the mainstream media, the New York Times generally, I mean, I wouldn't say that everything they write is negative, but they're, they're a newspaper, so they're going to cover problems. And one of the few positive articles I've, I've read on crypto in the New York Times was about helium. So there you have it. I think that says something. But yeah, I really enjoyed this discussion. So thanks so much. Thanks, Laura. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Is your Web3 experience hindered by inadequate crypto wallets and browser extensions? Ava Labs has created Core, a free, non-custodial browser extension engineered for Avalanche users to have a more seamless and secure Web3 experience. The best-in-class Avalanche Bridge now offers native support for the Bitcoin network. Put your Bitcoin to work in the robust DeFi ecosystem by bridging BTC to Avalanche today. With Core, you can also easily swap assets, display your NFTs in style, store your assets in a ledger-enabled wallet, and put real dollars into your crypto wallet in just a few clicks. Core is everything you need for a simple, secure, and convenient Web3 experience. Download the free Core browser extension from Google Chrome's App Store today. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Voyager Digital filed for bankruptcy. Crypto broker Voyager Digital filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. By applying for this type of bankruptcy, Voyager will be able to stay in business while it restructures its obligations and reorganizes its assets and liabilities. The company has $1.3 billion in crypto assets and $350 million in cash held at Metropolitan Commercial Bank, according to the statement released by the firm. Last week, Voyager halted all activities from its platform, including withdrawals. It also issued a notice of default to crypto fund Three Arrows Capital, as the latter failed to repay a loan worth $650 million. Voyager's financials were extremely debilitated by its exposure to 3AC. Stephen Ehrlich, CEO of Voyager Digital, pointed to Three Arrows Capital as the trigger for its bankruptcy. We strongly believe in the future of the industry, but the prolonged volatility in the crypto markets and the default of Three Arrows Capital require us to take this decisive action, Ehrlich said. If the restructuring plan gets passed by the court, customers with assets in the platform will receive a combination of crypto in their accounts, proceeds from the 3AC recovery, common shares, and Voyager or VYG tokens. Matt Levine from Bloomberg estimated that if the VYG token has no value and 3AC doesn't recover at all, users could expect 72 cents on the dollar. Customers have been hit hard and are blaming Voyager for deceitful marketing. I interviewed Jess Archer, a Voyager customer who has $70,000 locked in the platform. She said, On June 20th, they reached out to a bunch of partners and entered into these NDAs to try to bail them out. And six days before that, they sent an email out to us, meaning the customers, reassuring us that they didn't have any exposure to Celsius, they never engaged in DeFi lending. 
In fact, the Wall Street Journal reports that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is investigating Voyager's claims that the dollars in its customer accounts were protected, up to $250,000, by FDIC insurance. By the way, late Wednesday, TPS Capital, which long dubbed itself the over-the-counter trading arm of Three Arrows, tweeted a statement that it was independent and had separate management. TPS is an independent legal entity and its operations are separate and distinct from those of 3AC, it said. FTX bails out BlockFi. FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto trading platform, has closed a deal to lend struggling crypto lender BlockFi $400 million in revolving credit. The deal includes an option to buy BlockFi at a variable price up to $240 million max. Zach Prince, BlockFi CEO, explained what he believes led to this deal. Crypto market volatility, particularly market events related to Celsius and 3AC, had a negative impact on BlockFi. The Celsius news on June 12th started an uptick in client withdrawals from BlockFi's platform despite us having no exposure to them, he said. Last Friday, it was rumored that FTX was going to buy BlockFi for just $25 million, a mighty fall from July 2021 when BlockFi was valued at $4.75 billion. So, if it is sold for $240 million, that would mean a $4.5 billion loss from its peak valuation. This is not the first credit line that BlockFi has secured with FTX since the start of this bear market. Two weeks ago, FTX provided BlockFi a $250 million credit line to help BlockFi navigate the market from a position of strength, according to Bankman-Fried. BlockFi is just one of many crypto lenders that have been struggling in the past few days and weeks. CoinLoan announced on Monday it would be reducing the withdrawal limits due to market conditions. The company said that it had no exposure to the Luna fallout or 3AC. Vault, a Singapore-based crypto platform backed by major VC firms like Coinbase Ventures and Pantera Capital, halted its operations and paused withdrawals amid financial difficulties and volatile market conditions. It is now getting acquired by Nexo, Disclosure, a former sponsor, which will have 60 days to perform its due diligence. Babel Finance is hiring an investment banking firm to help it restructure after it froze withdrawals last month. Rumors spread that KuCoin was insolvent and that it was going to halt withdrawals. However, CEO Johnny Liu dismissed the rumors and warned, For Flutters who intentionally spread unverified info, KuCoin reserves the right to take legal actions. MakerDAO integrates real-world assets. MakerDAO approved a governance proposal to provide a $100 million die vault to Huntington Valley Bank, a 151-year-old Pennsylvania-based community bank, with $500 million in assets. To start, the bank will receive a loan participation facility with a $100 million die debt ceiling, which will grow to $1 billion over 12 months. These funds will help HVB to grow its businesses and support its existing ones. After creating the vault, the bank will post real-world assets as collateral, which include a variety of loans, like commercial real estate, industrial, and government-guaranteed loans. Maker will receive some interesting benefits as well, The first is additional yield. Second is a more diversified portfolio, which reduces risks. Lastly, it will allow real-world assets to enter DeFi. Celsius repaid its entire debt to Maker. Crypto lender Celsius has repaid its entire debt to Maker. Since the beginning of this month, the company has been reducing its debt by millions at a time. In total, it has paid back more than $200 million over six transactions, and the last one was done yesterday morning. After repaying the totality of the debt, 
Celsius withdrew 21,962 BTC, which are worth around $440 million. Last month, Celsius halted withdrawals, swaps, and transfers from its platform due to extreme market conditions. Ever since then, many crypto exchanges have followed the same path. Likely to further improve its financial position, the company has fired 150 employees, according to the block. Celsius released an announcement last Thursday trying to bring calm to its users. We are focused on working as quickly as we can to stabilize liquidity and operations. We continue to take important steps to preserve and protect assets and explore options available to us, it said. However, Thursday afternoon, the anonymous account 0xB1 tweeted that his name was Jason Stone and that his company, Kefi, was suing Celsius. In the lawsuit, he alleges that Celsius manipulated the price of the CEL token, that Celsius failed to hedge against Kefi's trading activities on behalf of Celsius as they had agreed upon, and that the company's financial mismanagement had created an accounting hole of $200 million. He also described what he calls the Celsius Ponzi scheme, in which he alleges that, at one point, the crypto lender offered double-digit interest rates to entice new customers because it could not redeem customers' Ether withdrawals on the platform. As of press time, Celsius had not responded to the allegations. First report issued due to Biden's executive order on digital assets. Thursday afternoon, the U.S. Treasury, in combination with other agencies, released a report on how the Biden administration will regulate cryptocurrencies. The publication resulted from President Biden's executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets in March. The fact sheet provides a framework which is guided by the principal policy objectives of the United States. It is supposed to protect consumers, investors, businesses, the U.S. financial system stability, and mitigate illicit finance and national security risks. What's outlined in the framework is intended to ensure that with respect to the development of digital assets, America's core democratic values are respected, said the report. On a related note, on Tuesday, the U.S. Office of Government Ethics issued a legal advisory note with the objective of banning U.S. government employees who own cryptocurrencies from working on crypto-related policies and regulations because of the influence they could have on the value of the assets. On social media, the news was not taken well by the crypto community. People with zero knowledge are going to make laws to govern crypto. It will involve ways to slow the progression of crypto for their friends. And, excellent, make it so regulations are created by those most ignorant of the topic, were some of the comments. A fake job offer was behind the Ronin hack. The block revealed the details behind the Ronin hack, one of the biggest exploits in crypto history, which drained $540 million from the blockchain earlier this year. Ronin is the network that supports Axie Infinity, the biggest play-to-earn game at that time. The U.S. government later tied the attack to Lazarus, a North Korean hacking group. It appears that the hack was facilitated through a fake company's job offer. The blog said that the hack involved a senior Axie Infinity engineer who applied for a job at another firm. He received the offer in the form of a PDF, and when he downloaded it, the hackers were able to introduce spyware into Ronin systems. In this way, they gained control of the system and proceeded to exploit the blockchain. Bitcoin Miners Roundup With everyone wondering how miners are doing with prices down, there was a lot of news this week regarding crypto mining companies. Hut Aid, a Canadian crypto miner, added 5,800 mining rigs to its facilities in Ontario. It said it has no intentions of selling the BTC it mines. Core Scientific, a crypto mining firm, sold over 7,000 BTC, worth $165 million. According to Chief Executive Mark Levitt, 
it had to cover expenses such as increased data capacity and to pay off debts. Bitcoin miner TerraWolf took a $50 million loan to invest in data center infrastructure. The company wants to take advantage of certain value-creating opportunities that might otherwise not be available during more healthy markets. Riot is moving its operations from New York to Texas to cut third-party hosting fees and lower power costs. In June, the company mined 421 BTC and only sold 300, accounting for a profit of about $6 million. Bitcoin miner CleanSpark produced 339 BTC in June, 9% more than the previous month. However, the firm decided to sell the majority of it. We won't blindly accumulate Bitcoin at the cost of diluting our shareholders and taking on unnecessary debt, CEO Zach Bradford said. Time for fun bits. Bitstamp announced fees, then unannounced them. Last Friday, Bitstamp, a crypto exchange based in Luxembourg, announced that it would begin charging an inactivity fee, which would be paid by users with balances below $200 who have not traded, deposited, or staked on its platform in the last 12 months. The fee was supposed to be 10 euros. However, after receiving very negative feedback, the Bitstamp team canceled its plans. Our goal has always been to be a secure and reliable trading platform that provides industry-leading services, and we do not intend to deviate from this path, Bitstamp said in a statement. Uprise loses millions shorting Luna. Uprise, a crypto startup from Korea, lost 99% of its client funds by shorting Luna, according to Seoul Economic. The company tried to short Luna while it was collapsing, but it got liquidated due to a temporary pump in the price. They lost about $20 million in the process, with only $3 million being part of the company's own treasury. At least the funds lost were not from average retail users. Instead, the report said that the clients were high net worth individuals and corporate entities. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Helium, Nova Labs, or Amir, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with up from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovich, Pam Majumdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. <laughs>